on the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood. It's the St. Louis Realtor Podcast with your host, Adam Cruz. Hey, 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 welcome to 2015 in the St. Louis Realtor Podcast. We're recording live from the Herman London Studios here in beautiful downtown Maplewood, Missouri. And today we've got a great show. I'm just going to cover tons of different topics. We might invite John Charlton to come in so I can ask him a few questions about a deal that we just did together. And I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, By the way, we do have some great questions for this week's show, but I always am looking for more questions. I don't know what you don't know. I don't know what you need to know. And so please, please email podcast at hermanlondon.com and submit your questions and we'll answer them. We can answer them anonymously if you prefer, like someone who submitted a question today, or we can give you some credit for your question like we're going to do for Dan Pescorse here in a little bit. Well, what an honor, by the way, to have a question from Mr. Dan Pescorse, St. Louis's number one entrepreneur. Um, So jumping right into it, I wanted to tell you real quick about a little website that I've heard about this uh, in the last week, I suppose. It's called Fiverr.com. Have you heard of Fiverr.com? F-I-V-E-R-R.com. Basically, um, by the way, I'm not sponsored by them or anything like that. I just was blown away when I, you can pretty much get someone to do dang near anything for you for $5 on this website. So you can pay someone to stand there with a sign that says HermanLondon.com and take a little video talking about how great the company is. You can have someone design a logo for you. Um, I'm having someone install a WordPress theme for me that I bought. I'm going to, we'll see. I just gave them the $5 and we'll see if they actually do what they're supposed to do. Uh, we had another friend of mine bought a um, 250 different Gmail email addresses for it for a campaign he's trying to do. And another guy bought uh, 30 sort of like free jingles or whatever that he can use for his podcast. So I just thought it was neat, something I thought I'd share with you guys. Uh, I wanted to remind you to go to HermanLondon.com, check out our blog, check out our uh, podcasts. You know, you can see the pictures that we talk about on the show and you can see what some of the different people look like that I'm interviewing all the time. And again, you can always submit your information, search for properties, all that type of thing. So I wanted to give a quick shout out to some of our new agents. We've had about six agents join us in the last three or four weeks here. And it's exciting. You know, it's exciting to see the company grow. It's exciting to get all these new faces in the office. But it's really cool to be it's cool to be adding to our kind of our talent pool. Uh, our knowledge base, I guess you can say, of all these different people who focus on these different types of things. So, for example, one of our agents owns and manages and operates or whatever a bunch of different vacation rentals. So her and her family own some different condos in Florida and some in Colorado that they rent out on a per-night basis instead of on a per-month basis. And it's been neat to talk to her. Her name's Kara and learning about kind of that business model and now knowing that if if someone asks about that or if someone's interested in turning their property into a vacation rental or even a vacation rental by owner, you know, I can say, Hey, you got to talk to our agent, Kara. She, she's been doing that. And we've had a few other agents join that are, that are on our, what we call our retail path, helping people like you buy and sell uh, homes for dream homes for your family. And another couple that are uh, kind of like what I would consider to be investor friendly. They're very, 
savvy with working with uh, different types of investors. And, you know, you've heard us talk on the show about flipping and wholesaling and rehabbing and buying and holding and all that kind of stuff. It's great to have more agents that are kind of specializing in that and know a lot about it. So, you know, when it times comes time to make some cash flow or get some return on your investment, we have people that can share their perspectives. And that's how I learned about, you know, what, what I know about real estate investing is from going to networking clubs, going to investing associations and whatever, and just asking um, all these different real estate investors, their perspectives and how they do it. And I was always surprised by how many different perspectives there are, or how many different ways there are, or how many different kind of approaches people take to making money in real estate. And so, you know, you never know which one's going to be best for you. But um, one of the questions that we got, actually, the one from Dan Pescore sort of goes in line with that. I'll just go ahead and jump around. My producer's looking at me like I'm crazy here today, but I'm going to jump around a little bit. Joey, I hope you don't mind. Um, here's a question from Dan Pescorse. He said, why invest in higher value rental property when they don't cash flow as easily? And why would I even bother? And I think what Dan is asking me is, you know, why should I buy, for example, a $150,000 house in Baldwin that I might make $200 a month on when instead I could buy for that same $150,000, I could buy maybe three or even four kind of lower income properties in a different area of town where you can buy a home for say $40,000 or be in total into it for even less than that. But just, just to give out general numbers, I'll just say three houses at $50,000 total each. And maybe each of those three properties at $50,000 might cash flow say 400 or $500 each. So for the $150,000 you can spend, I'm just going to use Baldwin as an example and make $200. Dan saying, why don't I use that same $150,000 and buy three houses in a different area of town and make, you know, $400 each or a total of $1,200. Why would I leave a thousand dollars on the table? And I think that if it's, if it was that simple, the answer would be, you're right, Dan, go to a lower income part of town and buy three houses for $50,000. But I think if you look at that investors, you know, let's get out their income statement, let's get out their balance sheet for the, at the end of the year, after they've owned a property for one year or two years or whatever, I think that we would find that the higher income home, let's say, I'm just keep using Baldwin as an example, you know, we maybe did actually net the 200 a month, the 24 uh, thousand or twenty four hundred dollars a year, and so that's what we actually made. And let's, let's say when the tenants moved out, it's very possible. And honestly, in our experience, we might find that the tenants moved out and left the property in better condition than what they found it in. And I'm not going to say that's not possible in the lower income areas. That's just not typical. So a lot of times, from what I've heard from investors, is they say, well. You know, we got our rent, we made our cash flow, but when they did move out, yes, we had to put in new carpet. Yes, we had to replace a few doors. Yes, we had to paint the whole property. Um, yes, we had to replace a couple windows, you know, that type of thing. And so on on a net income type of basis, they might have been, you know, m maybe equivalent to the to the home that was on the higher income range. Or at least if you consider, try to put a value to headaches, um, 
it might have been equivalent. You know, so every investor, again, like I said, has their own sort of perspective on how they want to do it, their own risk tolerance, their own tolerance for how much time they want to be spending on something. That's why different investors do things differently. And I've kind of, I started out personally buying homes. I always said I wanted to buy homes that I would live in. And so several of the investment properties that I own are in that $150,000 range. And, you know, they're, they have higher income type of people living in them. And they don't cash flow that well. They do cash flow. Maybe I'm making between 200 to $450 per month per property. Uh, but you guys have heard me talk about the four-family property I bought a little over a year ago. And, you know, that really changed my perspective on investing because now we have this four-family property where one unit pays for the entire building and the other three are profit. So... We spent a lot less on that property, something in the $60,000 range. And now I'm making more on that property probably than all of my other homes combined. So where do I stand on this? It's like, well, maybe get a mix of them or maybe just try to find a property that is a lower cost property with higher cash flow, but maybe in a marginal area that you would consider to be um, something that you would want to deal with and kind of medium income people instead of just low income or high income type of people. So uh, I hope that answered your question, Dan. And then a little follow-up thing about that would be in general, I think your goal should be to try to buy a property in an area that is going to appreciate if possible. You know, if we're talking about buying property, we're either talking about buying it for cash flow purposes or for appreciation and flip type of purposes. And in general, the best property will be cash flowing while you hold it and and depreciating in value so then you can eventually sell it if you want to and make a profit or you can maybe eventually uh like refinance it or take a line of credit out of it so you can use that to rehab another property or for a down payment on another property or to pay for your kids college or whatever you want to do so uh hope that helps mr pest course all right next up uh just a quick tip one of the properties that we're managing you know, the other day it was about 15 degrees here in St. Louis. Uh, we had a property that we're managing where the lease ended on December 31st. And so, of course, the tenant's moving out. Cold day. It's like 15 degrees. And they call me and they say, hey, we just want to let you know that we turned our utilities off. So, hey, the owner might want to come over here and, you know, drain the pipes and winterize the property, that type of thing. But on most of the properties that we manage, um, we... Tom Potter, I guess, discovered something that the utility companies call landlord leave-on. So if a tenant does take the utilities out of their name, uh, the utility company is not necessarily going to just rush out and, you know, turn the water off or turn the gas off and then let the pipes freeze. So they will just leave the utilities on and the bill will just go into the landlord's name, which is great so that they don't have those type of problems. And while we're showing the property, if it's vacant, while we're showing it, um, believe me, as a guy who's shown a lot of properties in the cold, cold winter months, actually, I was doing it this morning, you know, we we tend to spend more time in a property that's comfortable, right? So if we get to a property and it's freezing cold and it's vacant, you know, we're going to kind of run through it. I don't know. I'm not sure. Get back in the car where it's warm. If it's warmer, we might take a little more time to look around um, and check it out. So definitely encourage you to leave the utilities on and keep the home warm just for the own homes, uh, you know, security of the home and making sure that it don't, you don't have pipes burst or 
other problems, but also just for the convenience and comfort of the people who are showing the property. I think that we would love it if we have other realtors listening to the show and other realtors either from St. Louis or from across the country and other real estate brokers too. And so one of the things that we've been considering lately is our IDX options. And IDX is International, I believe, Data Exchange. And basically that's code words for the property search part of our website. So one of the most well-visited and most trafficked site parts of our current company, HermanLondon.com website, is people coming to the website to search for properties. And, I mean, why would they, first of all, why would they choose HermanLondon.com to search for properties as opposed to Realtor.com or Zillow or whatever? And it's a mix of reasons. You know, hopefully we have a, a fantastic property search experience that we can provide the clients. You know, they might really like the way the results show up or the abilities that they can find with how they can search for properties. Um, they might like looking through the map, that type of thing. But, you know, why would they choose Herman London over a Zillow or a Trulia or another really non-realtor-specific website? And essentially, all of the properties that are on HermanLondon.com on our property search are actually for sale. You know, it feeds directly from the MLS. So any realtor in town puts their properties on the MLS, whether they work for... Remax or Berkshire Hathaways or Gundaker or whoever else, we all put our properties on the MLS and then the MLS feeds their data to our company's property search website. So then if a property goes under contract or if it's sold, it's not going to be on our website on our property search anymore. So that's one of the things you, we get a lot of calls from people who found a home on Zillow and they want to see it. And we, you know, look it up and it's not for sale. It's just happened to have sold six years ago or whatever. And so Zillow's data was just wrong. So um, anyway, the po my point is we're considering switching our IDX provider. We're considering switching essentially the property search functionality that we have on our website. And so, you know, any, any feedback that you have, things that you like about searching for property on our site or things that you wish we had or things that you've seen on other websites, et cetera, we love your feedback because we really want to make sure that we make a great choice. All right, I want to just keep answering a couple different questions that we had. This is actually a question that we got from a client of ours who is a flipper. He he buys properties in his company name, and he sells them, and he signs for his company. And we, as the real estate brokerage, um, I guess I'm going to sort of talk legal stuff a little bit. I should disclose I'm not an attorney. And if you have legal questions, please consult an attorney. But he was asking us, why do we require what we call proof of signatory authorization? So this guy, like I said, he buys properties in the name of his company. And when we either are listing the property for him or helping him buy a property that he's buying in his company name, we always ask him to give us a copy of him or anyone else, a copy of, either his articles of organization or his operating agreement or something like that, proving that his, he personally has the ability to sign for their company. And the, the point is if we're going to go list someone's house and we look up, you know, we get a call from someone, they say, Hey, come over and list my house. And we look up in the tax records and the property is owned by, you know, greengrass, LLC, one, two, three.com or whatever by some company then we need to know that whoever we're going to, the human being that we're actually going to meet, meet with has the ability to 
sign and has the ability to make the choice essentially to let us list the property and ultimately sell the property. So that's why we require the proof of signatory authorization so we can prove that who you know whoever is signing these documents, whoever is giving us access to the property, uh, giving us permission to list it online and all that stuff actually has the legal ability essentially to list the property with us and it's not just some random guy trying to sell a house. You know, I've read articles before about, you know, fraud and crimes that have been committed where people are selling homes that they don't actually own. They're, you know, they're taking the money and running. I don't know exactly how they do that, to be honest with you. I mean, in the today's world of title companies, uh, title insurance and searches and all this kind of stuff, it's surprising to me that people can do that. But I guess with fraud and you know, fake documents and stuff like that. There's things that you can do, but I was going to go on and talk a little bit about agents taking the winter off. You know, if you're a realtor and you're listening to this call, to this podcast, then listen up. If you're just a, uh, a non-realtor, I should say, and you're listening, then, you know, this might not be too interesting to you, but I've seen this a lot online. I've, I'm on a lot of different Facebook realtor groups. We have agents in our office and they kind of consider the winter, to be, I guess, like sort of the slow month. And this might apply to sellers too, who a lot of times say, oh, I'm going to take my home off the market and I'm going to try to list it in the spring. And I say, why? I don't understand why. Why are you doing that? Why to the agent who says, oh, I'm just going to take the winter off. If it's because you can and, you know, you've got the money saved up and you want to go to Florida for a few months, that's great. That's that's amazing. That's fantastic. I, you know, I, I'd like to do that too. But if you're saying it's because you just don't think there's going to be any business, no one buys and sells in the wintertime, uh, I just believe that's incorrect. I, and I believe that's like a, you know, your mindset needs to change. For me, some of my biggest months, some of my most successful months have been the winter months. That Actually, this December, once again, is probably going to be my biggest month of the year. So uh, I would encourage realtors to think of their job and their career as a full-time all year round type of thing, you know? And so maybe we can spend some more time in the winter, um, you know, doing some planning for the next year and catching up on some of the projects that we wanted to do, making some, you know, updates to our systems and that types of thing. But in general, don't, don't take the winter off. Don't go get a part-time job over the Christmas holidays because you think that there's not any real estate deals going on because there are. And honestly, if someone's looking at property and dragging you out on December 24th to go look at homes, they're probably pretty serious. You know, if someone's going out on the day before Thanksgiving to go look at homes, they're probably pretty serious again. So take the time to do it, meet with them and take them out and show them homes because they're probably going to make some decisions and they probably really need to buy or they probably really need to sell. If you just, if you just work in the summertime when everyone's, when it's comfortable and everyone likes to go out looking at homes, you might end up working with some people who maybe aren't uh don't have quite the urgency to to make it to make a real estate decision or to make a real estate purchase or sale so anyway agents stop taking the winter off or i guess i should say herman london agents the couple of you that take the winter off don't do it other agents keep taking the winter off that's fine we'll take the business we'll sell the houses for you don't worry about it um all right so another question we got this is not necessarily actually this is not a, really a question I got, but something I wanted to point out. Um, this is a question that a client that I have asked herself. I was working with someone this morning, showing her properties around town, and we're actually looking at duplexes for her. She's going to live in one side, rent out the other. 
basically have her roommate who she doesn't share, you know, the room with, um, pay a good part of her, a good part of her mortgage, maybe half, maybe a little bit more. I call her a roommate cause they're under the same roof. Although again, they have their own kitchens, bathrooms, bedrooms, living rooms, dining rooms, all that kind of thing. And I was just asking her, how did you, you know, how did you decide to kind of become a real estate investor? She's bought and sold a few properties and she said it started back when she was in college and she was looking for a rental and she's just said, why would I rent when I can buy? And that's a question that I, I love the way that she framed that because I agree with it. It's kind of like, why should I rent when I can buy? You know, financially it might make more sense, but, uh, and, and I wish more people would ask themselves that question. I guess, you know, I've rented before and I've helped people find rentals before. And just because we're realtors doesn't mean that we just think everyone should buy all the time. You, you should just buy. It only makes sense, you know, because I, truly believe that we like to help people make smart decisions in real estate. And sometimes renting a piece of property, renting an apartment, renting a room from your buddy, whatever, that might be the smartest decision in real estate you can make. So at one point I had a friend who had a condo that was vacant. His girlfriend, fiance owned it. She moved in with him. It was sitting there vacant. And he offered me to rent that property for so far below market value that I would have been crazy not to take it. I, so I moved in there. I moved. It was a, a, it was a condo in Brentwood Forest, and I paid such a little rent there that it just made sense. I was literally making money every month. I was saving extra money that I otherwise would have been putting into a rent or a mortgage somewhere else. So it made sense. Um, but there are some good, some good calculators out there. Even one on Trulia that has a. Uh, why rent when you can buy, or I'm sorry, a uh, buy versus rent type of calculator. We'll put a link to that on our website on herbandlunder.com under this podcast. So you can check out that calculator and kind of do the calculation and see what makes sense for you. All right, a couple more questions we got. One person asked a question, are home values approaching a new bubble or will prices continue to appreciate? And I almost would like to say, I don't know. <laughs> How should I know? Um, I'll tell you that I don't necessarily feel like we're approaching a new bubble. It doesn't seem like properties have been appreciating that much. You know, from what I hear back in the day, you know, back in the day in the year 2000 or whatever, property prices were just appreciating, appreciating, appreciating. And you could buy a home one day and sell it the next and make a profit. And I, and I think that that kind of thing is definitely happening now, but I, I believe there's other factors at play that are making it so we're not necessarily at a bubble. Hopefully, we're just kind of correcting ourselves. You know, the whole 2007-2008 thing was sort of a correction, a pricing correction from getting the prices too high, and now I think we're sort of doing a pricing correction from bringing the prices back up a little bit to where they should be. And, you know, but the, one of the things is lending is not as easy now as it was, you know, in 2005, 2004 and whatever you, in 2005, the first home I bought, I brought my lender a piece of paper from a company, an accounting company offered me a job and they put it, put in my offer on a piece of paper and I gave it to a banker and they said, Oh, well, look at this. It looks like you're going to be making some money. We'll give you a loan. Here's a $200,000 loan. You can't do that now. You can't do that these days. So you know, a, a great f group of factors played into this whole, you know, bubble pop or whatever you want to call it that we had. And so, no, I don't necessarily feel like uh, we're 
approaching a new bubble, I do think prices will continue to appreciate some in certain areas if the property is in good condition, that type of stuff. So you really need to have a realtor who's extremely familiar with your market and who's familiar with pricing property properly evaluate your property and help you evaluate your purchase before you make the purchase so you know if this home that you're buying is going to appreciate or depreciate or stay stagnant or whatever. So wish I had a crystal ball, but I don't. But that's that's kind of my two cents about the whole thing. Uh, let's see. I got another question. Why do I need an agent when I can just as easily find the house online myself? This sounds to me like the type of question you can find on a website when you're figuring out questions that you should ask your realtor. But um, why do I need why do I need an agent when I can just find the house online myself? That's a good question. Sort of. I don't think that you do need an agent to find the house online yourself, right? So you, like I said, you can go to HermanLondon.com, you can go to Realtor.com, you can go to Zillow, whatever, and you can find all these homes that are for sale. I don't think you need an agent necessarily to help you find a home that you're interested in, you know, but you do need an agent to help walk you through the entire process, literally from how do I get in the home to see it to, oh my gosh, I love it. Now what do I do to, okay, we, we just made an offer. Now what do we do to, we're negotiating now what to, what kind of inspecting inspections should I get? And what rights do I have? And can I ask for that? And can I, can I, Oh, we can do that. Can you know, these are the kind of questions we get a lot of all the time. So, um, often when I'm working with buyers, you know, we're driving around, we're looking at homes and I, let's say we have trouble with the keys to get into one of the houses and the, the locks giving me trouble. You know, I'll give the keys to the client and say, here, you try it. And you know, you can be our, our door unlocking expert, you know, and I like to make a little joke of it because I'm not necessarily, just here to be a door unlocking expert. I'm not necessarily here to just drive you around. You know, our job really comes into play. Once we found you a home that you like, that's when the realtor can really start adding value. You know, that's true that you can just find the house, the find houses online yourself, but you know, to go through the process of actually protecting yourself, protecting your best interests and actually buying the house and making it yours now, um, you you it's you can definitely benefit from using a realtor not to mention that when you're working as a buyer with an agent typically you don't have to pay any commissions so the commissions being offered by the agent who has the home listed so the question i would be asking is why not use an agent when i'm bu- buying a house so next question is buying a home is buying a home a good idea for someone in their 50s is it still a good investment well that's a good question. I think that it all depends on the person's situation and not necessarily their age. I mean, it all depends on the property and what they're buying it for, like what they're going to use it for. It depends on the property, what they're buying it for in terms of what they're going to pay for it. How are they financing it? Do they have the money? Um, is it still a good investment? Well, I can't say, you know, potentially. How about that? Because if I assume when you're 50, you're not planning on kicking the bucket anytime soon, you know, hopefully you'll be living until you're 60 or until you're 70. So let's say you're going to buy a home and it's going to appreciate in value. And then you want to sell it when you're 70 so you can move in with your kids or something like that. Well, if you bought it for 200 today and 20 years from now, it's worth 250. Was it a good investment? That's up to you. It depends on what you, that's what, what you put down, what you uh, paid for it and all that kind of thing. 
So let's say you bought a four family like the one that I bought. Is it still a good investment? Yeah, it's going to cash flow for you. It's going to give you the money that you need for the rest of your life to continue to live and pay for things and go on vacations and buy your grandkids lots of presents all the time. So is buying a home a good idea for someone in their 50s? Is it still a good investment? I'd say potentially. You know, Talk to me. Talk to a realtor. Talk to John Charlton. And let's evaluate the property. Let's, you know, let's see if it's a good investment. Just, I don't think age really has anything to do with it, I guess is my answer. You can be 20 and buying a home could be a bad investment if it's a bad investment, you know, so sort of property specific. Uh, The next question I got was, what do you think will happen with interest rates this year? And I'm going to say, I have no idea. So it seems like I'm not going to, I'm not going to let myself kind of fall victim to the game that, it's tempting to fall victim to to when it's like, are they going to go up? Are they going to go down? Are they going to stay stagnant? And then they say, well, rates are going to come up. You better refi or rates are going to come up. You better buy now. You know, I don't really like to play victim to that game because it seems like the same person who tells me that, oh, rates are going to go up. You better buy now. Then three months later, they're saying, oh, rates are down. You know, you better refinance or whatever. So I'm not sure what will happen with interest rates this year. Honestly, I don't care because I think that no matter what the interest rate is, people are still going to need to buy and sell real estate. Rates right now are lower than I ever remember them being. You know, five and six years ago when I was buying property, I was getting loans in the 6.5% range. I don't remember exactly what my first rate was, but, you know, even the idea of getting a loan for a 6% interest rate was just so exciting to me. I couldn't believe it. So now when people are getting loans for three and four, I think I refinance one at 2.85%. It's like crazy, you know, but in the grand scheme of thing, I like to look at the big picture. And so in the grand scheme of things, interest rates are still going to be cheaper than saving up and buying the entire property with cash. And they're still going to be lower than what you could use to invest your money in somewhere else. So, um, not to be rude, but I don't care what's going to go on with interest rates. So next question. Do you think that the unrest in our area over the past few months will have an effect on housing prices in the new year? Well, that's a good question. And again, I don't have a crystal ball. I would probably answer that by saying it depends. Um, You know, I've talked to some people about it and they think that all the unrest in certain areas of town is going to cause no one to want to buy houses over there and it's a fire sale, you know? Um, and I talked to other people like some of our new investor, you know, friendly or whatever type of agents. And they say that people are just buying properties up there like crazy. So, you know, will it affect housing prices? Probably. I think that it'll affect, you know, the type of home that's priced kind of, that's sort of priced itself out of being investor friendly will probably in those general areas where the unrest you could call it is happening i think those prices are probably going to go down a little bit you know i sold a home in ferguson probably i guess about six months ago or or at least a month or two before the the whole incident and i actually got a call from that seller recently and he was so happy that we sold when we did Uh, i didn't look up to see what his home is worth now, you know, but he obviously feels like the price of the properties over there is going to go down. Um, I, I just, it just all depends. You know, that's one of the interesting, crazy things about real estate is things 
change. Things fluctuate and everyone has all these different perspectives. So when it's bad for someone, it's, you know, when, when it's bad for someone, it's good for someone else. Right. So I always said, everyone's always been talking about how the real estate market was bad for the last few years. And I'm saying bad for who, you know, so it was bad for sellers, but what does that mean for buyers? It's great. Buyers are loving it. They're getting great deals. And so now everyone's saying, Oh, the real estate market's coming back. It's a good market. And I say, good for who? It's great for sellers. You know, talk to talk to somebody who's trying to buy a home in Webster or Kirkwood right now. They're going to say the market sucks. I hate it because every home that gets listed in Kirkwood and Webster in general has, you know, five and six offers on it in the first day. You go to an open house and there's 30 people outside fighting to get in. Who's that good for? That's great for the seller. The seller's loving it, but the buyer is not loving it. So, you know, market being bad, market being good, I think it's all kind of a matter of who you're talking to and what position they're in. All right, coming up next, we're going to bring in John Charlton from Midwest Mortgage Capital. He's been banging on my door. He's got some exciting stuff to tell us. So here we go. Let's bring in John. John, I brought you in because I've got some questions for you, but I can tell by the look on your face that you are excited about something and so excited that you're about to interrupt me now. What is it that made you storm in here right now? And I'm sure it's not the PBR. It's not the PBR. No. Um, what I'm excited about was today we got guidelines sent out to us, um, basically reintroducing the Fannie Mae Freddie Mac conventional loan 97% purchase program. So you got an email from Alan Greenspan and he said right. you can get loans for... Well, Actually, you... it was a tweet. He tweeted me. Alan Greenspan is not in the business anymore, is he? <laughs> no. Who's the guy now? <laughs> Who knows? It's not a guy. It's a woman. A wo I'm sorry. I didn't... And, you know, you know, let's no offense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Bernanke so, was next. And then there's a new gal and I, there's a new gal in town. And she yet. said, is this right? She said, you can now give out loans for up to 97% of the purchase price. Actually, she has nothing to do with it because she would be the head of the federal reserve bank. But that being said, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are the government sponsored banks that basically hold about 80% of the loan paper here in the U S and they expanded a guideline, meaning they went from a minimum down payment for a conventional mortgage at 95% to now 5% down to just 3% down. So 2% two, two difference. Is that going to make a big difference in your life? It's going to make a big difference because it basically means that people that have been opting to do FHA loans with a 2.25% upfront mortgage insurance premium, which can be a lot of money, and with permanent MI can now get a loan with less of a down payment that will have expirable MI, meaning mortgage insurance that will come off the loan, you know, at a certain point versus having it for the entirety of the loan. And, um, you know, that's why it's a big deal. Okay. So, so a couple of questions there. Number one, are you saying that right now or yesterday or tomorrow or whatever, if I got an FHA loan and I said, okay, John, I'm buying a hundred thousand dollar house. Here's my 3.5% down payment, AKA here's my $3,500 you or the Fannie Mae or Bernanke or Greenspan or whoever was going to take my $3,500 and take 2250 of that and say, thanks for our upfront mortgage insurance premium fee. They're going to add it to your loan. So you're getting a loan for $100,000. you are putting 3.5% down, and your actual loan amount is for 99000 and some change. So I didn't really just get 3.5% equity. I got a little bit of equity, 1% yeah, or less 1%, or whatever it is. Roughly. Yeah. Okay. And so now the numbers that you're running me through are if I'm buying this hundred thousand dollar house, I can buy 
I can put down 3%, which is $3,000. Immediately have that equity I have stake. that equity. And then you said, what did you say about my forgivable MI? Your mortgage insurance will actually come off the loan once you have 20% equity in the home. Okay. So FHA loans, just last year, they changed their guidelines so they had permanent MI. So meaning that you pay mortgage insurance even when you had you know, 60% equity in the home, you would still have mortgage insurance you're paying to the bank, which is covering them in case you foreclose. Right. You know, and now with this program, you have an expirable MI policy for somebody who's just putting 3% down. So I'm still paying mortgage insurance. I can't get away with no from mortgage that unless insurance. I put down 20%. Well, you can do buyouts. So you can buy out of mortgage insurance. But yes, you're paying mortgage insurance unless you put 20% down. So what, you, what you're what you storming in here now to tell I'm me. I'm pumped up about this. You're fired up. What you're telling me is, Adam, if you have a client who wants to buy a $100,000 house. Right. They need to come to the table with $3,000. Correct. Then they will buy this house. They will owe $97,000 on it. That's right. Roughly, right? Mm-hmm. And then every month they're going to pay their mortgage, pay their mortgage, pay their mortgage. And eventually one day they're going to they're gonna only owe $80,000. That's right. And when they do, you are automatically going to make them stop paying this mortgage insurance. Mortgage insurance will come off automatically. There are other ways to remove MI. When it's an expirable MI policy, you can get a new appraisal done, et cetera. But if you have permanent MI, there's no getting rid of it. So, I mean, that's that's the big deal. But there's more than that associated with that. If you're a realtor and you've been doing FHA loans, you've run into FHA appraisals that have inspection notices for stuff that's kind of silly. sometimes silly. GFCIs in the kitchen and bath, peeling paint. You know, if you've run into that on an FHA loan, well, you're not going to run into that on a conventional so that's a big deal. Another big deal is this, is a lot of people have FHA mortgages now and they want to move. Well, you know, they don't have a whole lot of savings. They want to buy a new house. You know, a lot of these people are, are, are FHA borrowers still in terms of credit score or in terms of their you know, amount of down payment they can do. Well, they now have an option where they can put 3% down on a purchase and still keep that FHA loan. So if they were turning it into a rental property or whatever, you know, there's, there's, uh, this is expanding the market. Okay, let me ask you a few shotgun questions here. Can I put down 3% on an investment property? No, never. Okay, if, <laughs> I know, I was just hoping to slip that one in. If I, using my $100,000 example, if I paid it and paid it and paid it, now I only owe you $80,000. Is that going to affect my monthly payment? Yes, is your the, payment would drop. Well, the MI would drop. I mean, the who knows the MI drops, so my payment, should the amount I write you a check for every month should go down. That's correct. I like that. Okay, and is are these loans assumable? No, conventional loans are never assumable. And um, why do we care since I've never seen a loan be assumed anyway? But. Well, I mean, there is some argument to be made for, I mean, certainly if you have like the ability to get a VA loan, for instance, a VA loan is a good loan to have because of the assumability when the market interest rates are this low. Because if you have a VA loan, which is assumable and oftentimes is assumed, you know, it's a lot more complicated to get an FHA loan assumed. Um, That's the only other one. USDA is also, all the government loans have assumability, but VA loans is pretty straightforward. If a person wants to buy a house that has a VA loan on it, they, with limited restrictions, they can assume it. So what's the advantage to an assumable loan? Well, interest rates are at 3.5% right now. In 2020, interest rates are at 7%. 
you can sell a house that has an assumable loan and and that person can have a three and a half percent mortgage on what was owed. I mean, that's a pretty sweet deal for that buyer. And you, you heard know. it here, folks. The year 2020 interest rates will be 7%. 7%, baby. You're sure about that? No, I'm not sure about anything. Well, you just said that. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a hypothetical. Sorry. Oh, it's hypothetical. Okay. Because I was just answering a question about what do I think will happen with interest rates this year. And I said, I don't care. I'm sure that's not the answer you would give, but. Uh, okay. Um, I don't care with certain restrictions. Um, you know, this is a country that, that is built on kind of constant fluidity and constant growth. Um, a little rise in interest rates, slow and steady is good for everybody because values go higher. Interest rates maybe go higher, but the people's ability to move and to sell and to buy increases with that. What you don't want to see is a day where interest rates go from 4% roughly where they are now to 6%, you know, in a short period of time, because that, that causes panic, you know, in the marketplace. So, well, and part of the reason I say I don't care is because it's like things change so much. Everything's fluctuating all the time. You know, 10 minutes ago, I didn't know that you can have a conventional loan with only 3% down, you know, so it seems like the market's always fluctuating and they're all, the rules are always changing, right? Correct. So let's say the interest rates do go to 7%. I'm guessing there's going to be some new program out there, or maybe everyone's going to be assuming the loans that they, of the homes they're buying or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. or, or now that you have this. That was really common. Actually, assumability was huge in like the 1980s and 85 70s. Interest rates were, interest rates were or whatever. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So now we have this new conventional loan where I can put down 3% if I want, instead of 5% on a, on your conventional loan as of yesterday. Right. Yep. And so, what is that going to mean? Is that going to mean interest rates are going to rise? Is that going to make home values, you know, rise to where we get another bubble? Or do you think it's just going to be just a great thing in general? I think it brings more people to the marketplace. And these might be statistically, you know, the, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, looking at a, a million people, there's going to be more home buyers. There's going to be more people that are, that are buying, you know, does that necessarily affect somebody who's doing you know, three purchase deals a month. Maybe not. Maybe it does. Maybe it means instead of three, there's four, you know, cause those statistics have to catch up somewhere. So in so, theory, potentially the home values could appreciate because now we have more demand. Correct. It should increase demand. It's the first loosening of restrictions that's happened since the crash back in 07, 08. So, I mean, that is significant. You know, that's the significance of it is it's the beginning of, of seeing a little bit of expanded guidelines um, one thing that has happened in our economy is that, you know, even though people want to move, they've been, you know, their ability to move has been, you know, sabotaged by the marketplace, you know, and that has to do with home values, people that feel like they can't sell their home, you know, any increase in value is going to increase the amount of, of, you know, just business sales that happen. So it's good um, for realtors. It's good, it's good for, for lenders. realtors. Good for lenders. It's good for sellers, I guess. It's good for sellers because, yeah, because I mean, if you're going from, you know, and and I I wouldn't discount the fact that over the last five years, you know, FHA mortgages were a huge part of the marketplace, and I don't know how big they are for each individual realtor, but overall, you know, it was three and five 
purchase loans at one point were being done with FHA paper. That's a huge percentage. Okay. Because of the restrictions now on FHA loans, most people that you talk to have heard through the news media this way or that way that really they need to avoid an FHA loan because there's permanent MI. You know, they've heard all those things. That deters buying. I mean, anything that says, you know, this program's not good, you know, is deterring um, somebody from, from, you know, moving forward. So can I ask you an inappropriate question? Do it. Are lenders paid differently on FHA loans versus conventional loans? Yes. Better or worse? Don't give me numbers. Just is it better for you, for a lender if a buyer gets an FHA loan or gets a conventional loan? So for me personally, it means absolutely nothing. So it doesn't matter to me. I'm not compensated and the law restricts compensation to individual loan officers. I can't steer somebody to an FHA loan because I make more money. It's not the case. But lenders do make more money on FHA loans because of the MI. And here's the reason is that that MI policy being in permanent place makes the bank very safe if somebody goes to foreclosure. So the loan officer doesn't necessarily necessarily make more but the like the, the bank, bank makes more. bank makes more because it's seen as more secure paper okay and the, the, again this is always the interesting thing about real estate so many variables so many so many things changing so many different perspectives you mm-hmm. know sure you came storming in here excited about the three percent down thing if as soon as aunt Mary hears about this she is going to freak out because she's well, not I think, happy i think everybody has a client that has an you know you you either have a client now or you're going to run into a client who is has an FHA mortgage right now. So this is, you know, just, let's talk just brass tacks where I actually see this as, mm-hmm. as being significant. You probably will talk with somebody who's got an FHA loan that they got a couple years back and their, you know, their family's gotten larger, this house that they have, you know, not, not big enough for them. If they went to sell that house today, that house is not going to be worth more than what they paid for it. You know, they feel kind of stuck and, you know, they have some savings, not a whole lot, but they have some savings that they've they've put together. And basically, you know, they have been trying to figure out a way to get into their next house. And this isn't going to be every single buyer, but this mm-hmm. is I'm guaranteeing you everybody's going to run into somebody who has an FHA loan. You can't have two FHA loans. So that person has been like trying to figure out, do they need to borrow money from a family member? How can they make this happen? Blah, blah, blah. You know, bottom line is, is that that person now can enter the marketplace with a conventional loan and only a 3% down payment. And I support it and I like it. I like putting down small down payments because I like you to be able to use your money for other stuff. Save it for a rainy day. Save it for, put it towards the home, fixing it up, whatever. You know, again, there's always going to be the people out there like Aunt Mary who think we're all criminals if we don't put down 20%. Anyone who doesn't put down 20% is crazy and criminal. Well... Okay. No, I disagree. You know, when houses were $16,000, then there's a great argument for that. But houses are hundreds of thousands of dollars now. And I mean, that's just a change in, in the world. So let's deal with it. We're just going to have to have Aunt Mary in here one day and you guys can have a little debate. We can. Yeah. You bring her in. You hear that, Aunt Mary You're I, coming in. I want her here. I want to talk with her. Do we have to go over the uh, stuff? Yeah. You always bring it back to the center at the end. Um, no. So... My name is John Charlton. Our company's Midwest Mortgage Capital, and my NMLS number is one eight eight nine one zero. And what about your phone number? 
My phone number is 314-744-7851. That's, a, that's my office direct or my cell phone's 314-517-0262. Perfect. Thanks very much and see you next time. All right. Thank you. I guess that's it for today, actually. I'm going to wrap it up. Joey has a whole page of notes from today's podcast. Please, please check out HermanLondon.com for all our updates. I implore you to submit your questions so I can answer some great questions. We're actually going to start taking call-ins in the next few podcasts, so get ready for that if you want to call a question in and be live on the air with the Herman London Real Estate Group. And uh, that's it. See you next podcast. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. Take care. Take care.